0: Well, good morning. How are you guys? My name is Nicole Yunus, and I'm part of the teaching team here at Ward. And I realize that when I come, I tell you I'm from Richmond. I did not know that is a place in Indiana. I am from Richmond, Virginia. And in Richmond, Virginia, we would not be having church today based on the snow outside. And I have to confess to you, when I got up this morning, I actually looked at the Ward Church website as if you would cancel church for half an inch of snow, but we would in Richmond. <laughs> Truly, it's like apocalyptic. The, the mode in Richmond in snow is just, we'll just wait till it melts. That's the only thing that happens. And so everyone stays home for, we were prepared for COVID before COVID because we were used to just canceling things for days and weeks on end if necessary. So I'm really glad to be here with you guys today. I'm glad that I was able to just just you know, brave the treacherous snow, which was not treacherous at all. And I'm glad you were as well so that we can be together today. I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. We had a good Thanksgiving, but Thanksgiving uh, brings out something um, extra special in most mothers. Um, And that extra special thing in most mothers is there's usually a time of some kind of family intervention that is required when you are a mom, especially if you're a mom of teenagers, as I am, I have a 19, 17, and 14-year-old, and we were all piled in the car. They're all the size of grown adults, so we're all piled in the car, headed to my mom's down in North Carolina. And I felt, um, really, the word of the Lord came to me. And I felt a sense that it was very important that I remind my children that I expected them to speak kindly and gently and gently to each other and to everyone else around. And when I said that in what I believed was just a firm and loving tone, I was told that I in fact was not being kind nor gentle in the way that I delivered that news. I don't know if anybody can relate. I saw this this post on social media and it felt a little bit like what happens when you're a mom getting ready for Thanksgiving. There are two modes to a woman getting ready for Thanksgiving. And, and sometimes y'all, sometimes there's that family intervention is needed to get everybody straight. Amen. Do you guys under, you know how that feels? So what we're going to see today in the book of Malachi is that God also is having a family meeting and he's having a family meeting with some very, very strong words for his people. And I think that if we're gonna, we're gonna take a look and we're gonna do a flyover of Malachi, you guys hang with me because I think God has some very, very important things to say too about our own hearts as he has this family intervention. This was not for the people who were not of God. This was for the people of God. This was a message that was given to his family about what he was experiencing from them. So we're gonna be in the book of Malachi if you wanna find it in your Bible. It's the last book of the Old Testament. We're right here in the in-between Just like we're between Thanksgiving and Christmas as we head into Advent, we're in a book that represents the in-between for God's people. And what they don't know, but what we know, is that what was coming was a 400-year period of silence between the prophecies of God and the fulfillment of those promises in the birth of Jesus. And so we're actually looking at those last words that God has for us in the Old Testament today. And Malachi is really interesting because the framework of Malachi is laid out in a way, it's sort of a question-answer format. And we saw a little bit of that when we read from Malachi chapter three. That was one example of that question-answer format. And seven different times in the book of Malachi, God makes a statement and the people answer with a question, well, how have we done that? And then God expands upon his statement. And what I love is that the very first thing that God says, and this is going to become important to us again in just a bit as we get into the end of the book. The very first thing that God says to his people is, I have loved you. And I want you to hold on to that. Because sometimes when we hear strong words, when we have strong confrontation, it can feel like the kind of intervention that we see on A&E, right? If you ever watched the show Intervention, which is about people and families and addiction. And whenever you go to that intervention show on A&E, there's always sort of a consequence that's gonna happen to the people if they don't do what needs to happen to, to kind of bring them into health. And what we see from God Is actually, he starts with, I have loved you, and he's gonna end with a promise as well. He maintains relationship with his people, but he's not afraid to call them out on the truth of the way that they are living. And so, that very first question answer statement is, I have loved you, and the people say, How have you loved us? And then God goes on and he says, Hey, no, this is what's happening, it's the priests. It's the religious leaders who show contempt for my name, and the people ask, well, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? So just a point of context for you right there. God begins to call out the truth of what's happening with his people, and the first thing that he mentions is that the people are not bringing their best to the altar, God has made it very clear in the, in the sort of system of sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament that the people are meant to bring unblemished sacrifices, perfect sacrifices. And what's been happening is the priests have been giving less than sacrifices. And so what we see is these are people who are religious. These are people who would come to church. These are God's people. And they don't see that what they're doing is half-hearted and halfway And that first intervention that he gives is to his leaders, to the leaders of the church who are bringing less than sacrifices. The questions and answers go on in Malachi 2, verse 17. The statement is, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied you, you ask? We're going to return to that one. Malachi chapter 3, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? And in this part, God's actually speaking to his people about the offering that they're bringing to the church, to the worship center, to the service. He's like, no, no, you're not doing the things. Your actions don't match your heart. You say that you're committed to me, but you're not doing the things that I've actually laid out for you to be committed to. And what's so interesting in Malachi is that what the people were doing was sort of the daily life stuff. The stuff that God was calling out is the way that you live out your faith. He calls out the way that you live out your faithfulness in your family. He talks about men and women, husbands and wives. And then this last little section of this prophecy, he says, and he calls out the way that they're living out their finances. You see, the mundane does matter to God. And it seems like the people at that time were so blind to the way that they were showing up for God. And it's not because God just cares about our actions, it's because our actions represent our heart. And what they were doing was half-hearted action, and in the family meeting, God is calling that out. The last one is Malachi 3.13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You see, there seemed to be some sort of gap between how the people of God thought they were living and how God was actually experiencing them. And the action just represented the heart. And so what we see behind these, what we have for us, because yes, there are topical things that we can learn from Malachi. There's, there's topical things about being leaders in the church. There's topical things about being faithful in our marriages. There's topical things about finances. But actually, if we're gonna elevate above that and ask what is God really talking about here, I think what God is really bringing to the forefront is a posture that his people had in their relationship to him. How have you loved us? Here's a few of the ways I named those postures. A posture of entitlement. The people were like, God, you're not showing up for us the way that we thought that you would. The next question, how have we shown contempt? There was a mindset of just enough. Isn't this enough, God? Aren't I just doing enough? The next one, how have we wearied him? A posture of hypocrisy. They didn't even see how they were showing up for God and how entitled and stubborn they were in the way that they experienced and what they wanted from God. How are we to return? There was a mindset of arrogance. God, you haven't done for us what we thought you would do. So why are we supposed to do more? And so God is like in the family meeting, Intervention after intervention, naming these postures of his people. How have we robbed you? It was a posture of defense. What have we said about you? There was an attitude of self-righteousness. And you see all of those words right there, in some way or another, I hope are convicting to you too about the way that we can show up with God Yeah, yeah, yeah. we may be coming to church and I may be calling myself a Christian, but God is actually asking, but what is the posture of your heart? What is the way that you are experiencing me? And what I love about this letter is in the midst of this reality therapy, there's even something deeper going on. So we have level one, which is the topics that God is speaking about. Then we have level two, which is the posture of the heart, right? That he's calling out in his people but we actually have an even deeper level, the one that I think is open to all of us right now, a question I think that we have to ask. Because in the context of Malachi, what was actually happening here, this is in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you guys are familiar with those Bible stories, the people had actually been able to return to Judah. They were actually becoming a nation again. The prophecies that they had believed were coming true. They were allowed to return to their homeland. They were allowed to rebuild the temple. They really believed that this would be a time of peace and prosperity. It was 100 years after they had been allowed to return. But the reality is things hadn't gone quite according to plan. They didn't experience God the way they had the first time. The miracles weren't the same. The rebuilt temple was actually inferior to the first temple. Judah itself had become pretty insignificant and small, maybe 150,000 people. So if you know the story of the Old Testament and you know who the Israelites were when they left Egypt and all of those signs and wonders and God led them out, a million strong, you know, and now here they are and everything is not quite as they thought it would be. And so I actually think that the heart level question for all of us is what do we do with disappointment? What do we do with unmet expectations? And all of us have those, all of us have those places where we're like, God, why haven't you acted here yet though? God, how how come you haven't shown up in this way in my family? Lord, what are you doing in our world? God, where are you in our nation? And so many of us, we'll, we'll stay at level one, we'll do, we'll do topics, we'll do, okay, pastor, I guess I need to come to church more. We may do level two. We may start to ask the question, what is my posture toward God? What is my posture toward the world? But to do level three, to actually wrestle through the times where we have unmet expectations and disappointments in God, because that's actually what the people were experiencing. Things were not as they expected them to be. What do we do? with the entitlement, the posture, the sense that God hasn't shown up for us and they were blind to it. So God gives them some reality therapy and it's the same kind of reality therapy that we see in the New Testament. I love this phrase from 2 Timothy. Um, I'm gonna read you the whole phrase. So it says in uh, verses one through five, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Here we go, reality therapy. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, take a breath, it's a long list, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this, verse five, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people because the reality of what was happening here is God was saying, you're my people, my chosen people. You're living out religion, but you're denying the power of who I am. You see, what was happening in Malachi is the people were, were measuring God on a human effort yardstick. But God, why haven't you showed up yet like this? But God, where are you in this? I'm bringing my half-hearted self because I think you're bringing your half-hearted self. Things were not as they appeared. And so the real problem was here. Malachi 2, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? And God answers. This is how you've wearied me, he says. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? We see two of the great accusations that we as humans love to level against God. The first one is, accusing God of injustice. We measure God on our own justice measuring stick. And we measure God in our own time. And that's what the people were doing at that time. They're like, but God, you haven't showed up for us the way that you said that you would. You aren't fulfilling your promises. Where are you for me, God? And the second great act of human nature that we all fall prey to is shifting blame. So the people are saying to God, hey God, where are you? And by the way, this is what you're doing. We're gonna take what's happening here. You're telling me about all the problems that I have, all the ways that I'm not showing up wholeheartedly and I'm gonna blame you for them. This is a tale as old as time. Blame shifting has been around since the Garden of Eden. Here's three examples in scripture that are actually almost funny. In Genesis 3, when God confronts Adam and Eve and he says, what did you do? You, you ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. What happens? You guys know the story. Adam says, hey, it's the woman. It's the woman you put here with me. She did it. And then the Lord says to the woman, what is it that you've done? And she says, the servant deceived me. And that's why I ate. It doesn't stop there. Later on, when Moses is with the people, he goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Do you guys remember this story? Little Little Bible time. Aaron, his brother, is down with the people. Moses comes down. He's been up there so long. He's been up there long enough that the people decide they need to set up their own system of worship, and they better worship something, and they're worshiping a golden calf. Moses confronts Aaron about it. Listen to what Aaron says. He says, you know the people. They're prone to evil. They told me to do it. They said that I need to make them gods. And so this is what I told them. Whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. I'm reading this from the Bible. They gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. I have no idea how it happened. (laughs) Blame shifting is a tale as old as time. You might not be familiar with this one from 1 Samuel 15. It's a little bit uh, buried in a, a lot of narrative about Saul, King Saul. And in this story, Saul is supposed to wipe out completely in his campaign. God has called him to wipe out people and animals. Everything was meant to be destroyed completely. But Saul actually held on to all the best of everything that he plundered. And when he's confronted with it, he says the soldiers did it. They spared the best of the cattle. And by the way, they were going to do it so they could sacrifice to God. Guys, anytime something shows up over and over in scripture, it's not for us to say, oh, look at those people and the way they do wrong. It's for us to say, oh, I am that person, and that is the way that I do wrong. All of us are prone in our own way to shift blame. It's our way of making sense of things when they don't make sense. I thought I'd give us seven sort of contemporary ways that we might be prone to shift blame. The first one, Self pity. Well, it's been so hard for me. And if you knew who my boss really was, you would understand if you knew the way that I was raised, that's why I can't be different than I am. Second one, bitterness. It was so painful and it was so hurtful that I can't forgive and I won't forgive because that person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. I'm going to hold on to that bitterness in my heart. And by the way, bitterness knows no victim. It hits it, it everybody the same. If you've ever met a bitter person, you know that they're not just bitter toward the thing or the circumstance or the person that went wrong. They're bitter about everything. Third, greed. We call it savings, but God, isn't this my retirement? Isn't this for my college fund? Aren't I supposed to do this? This is just saving. This is what it is. We, we shift blame. We say, no, God, this is, this is it, it's inflation. The economy is really bad right now. Fourth thing that we do, anger. We hold on to anger because we blame it on the other person. We say, but this is what happened to me. I have the right to be angry. We shift blame off of ourselves onto others. Fifth way, spiritual dullness. Well, my church doesn't preach the word. I'm not getting meat. I'm not getting fed. It's not my fault that I don't have a vibrant spiritual life. It's my pastor who just keeps on being real surfacy with her, his messages, rebelliousness, and then finally worry, which is such a strong one. We actually continue to worry because we're like, but these are the circumstances, and I have to think about them, and I have to worry about them. If you knew what was going on, blame shifting is a tale as old as time, and it always is about something going on with us, but it's not just about something here. If we're brave enough to face it, blame shifting a lot of times is about issues that we have with God. I spent a lot of years in a counseling office as a counselor spent a lot of time listening to people's stories and the moment before breakthrough in someone's life particularly spiritually is when we can start to recognize wait a second where does this blame what am i doing because do i believe that god is sovereign do i believe that god is the lord of my life do i believe that he is knowledgeable about these circumstances Because if so, then my issue is actually with God. Am I willing to wrestle with God about the unmet expectations, about the disappointments, about the grief, about the loss? Am I willing to go to God with that? Because what was happening in Malachi, what happens with us is that we keep on finding our why somewhere else, we'll blame others, we'll blame ourselves, we'll blame God, but we're not able to actually say, okay, what is God actually doing here? What is God doing in the darkness? What is he doing in the unmet expectations? What is he doing in my disappointment? Can I use this season of waiting to allow God to do something more in me? Am I willing to wrestle with my theology, my understanding of who God is, of what this world is about, to wrestle with eternity? Because disappointment and unmet expectation give us the hunger to know. Disappointment and unmet expectation can actually break you out of spiritual apathy. And I think all of us are facing that right now in a season that we did not expect. So the point, the heart of the matter is that your heart matters. Perhaps when we experience unmet expectations, our faith can become half-hearted. But here is the wonderful good news of our God. Malachi 1-2 started with, I have loved you. And in Malachi 3, verse 1, God gives another promise. After all the intervention, as the intervention's going on, as the truth is being told, he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. In the midst of our half-hearted faith and our lackluster devotion, God still loves and God still promises And he gives us two promises here in Malachi that are so relevant to us as we head into the Advent season. The first promise is this, I will send a messenger. Now the word Malachi actually means messenger. And for the people of the time, they would be very familiar. There'd be a passage from Isaiah that would be so familiar to the Jews of that time as they received this message from Malachi that uses such similar language as we see here in Malachi. It's from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know where that passage and prophecy is fulfilled? In John the Baptist, the messenger who was to come before Jesus. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospels, highlight this passage as the prophecy that John the Baptist was the messenger who was to come. The first promise that God gives those people is revealed. But he gives a second promise as well. And the second promise is this. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. It's one thing to send a messenger, but now there is another promise given. And the promise given is that the Lord you are seeking will come. The passage goes on and talks about judgment. The passage in Malachi talks about the idea that this this messenger, this this one you are coming, the Lord who is coming, he will be a refiner, he will be a purifier of his people. But when Jesus enters the temple, after being quietly born with an anonymous life, when he finally enters into his public ministry, he doesn't read about judgment, he doesn't read about purification. He opens the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah 61. Here's Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see the promise of Malachi that the Lord will suddenly appear in his temple was fulfilled in Jesus. But do you know what Jesus did? I didn't even know this until this week as I was studying this. When you go back to Isaiah 61, when you read the prophecy that the people would be so familiar with, do you know that Jesus left out one line? He read the prophecy exactly as it's written in Isaiah 61. But look at what he let left out in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Do you know that Jesus left that line out? when he spoke his first public ministry, when he declared the good news, it's not because that day isn't coming, but it's because that day hasn't come yet. You see, Jesus is the bridge between the invitation of God's mercy and the fulfillment of the promise that God will come again, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that everything wrong will be made right, that all evil will be abolished, all of that's true. The people of Malachi's day wanted God's judgment. But God said, listen, you are wanting. If I was to judge you, you'd be found wanting. And when Jesus comes, he is the bridge between God's mercy and God's judgment. We are living in that Advent. When we celebrate Advent season, we are celebrating waiting. We wait to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But we also wait in our lives for the fulfillment of God's promises. And that is good news. There is good news that we are waiting. Malachi 3 verse six says this, I the Lord do not change. You see, Malachi started with a promise. I have loved you. It went through a bunch of interventions about the posture of our heart toward God. And it finishes with a promise. I will send a messenger. The Lord will appear. He will refine. He will purify. But before that, he brings mercy. And God says, I don't change. This is the same message from Genesis to Revelation. You see, this is the amen of the Old Testament. Amen means it's true. The fact that we serve an unchanging God is the amen of the Old Testament. And it's the promise of the coming Christ. All of that is true. All of that is true is our amen. So as we close today, I just want to invite you to a couple of things that God can be doing when you are living in disappointment, you're living in unmet expectation. How can God be purifying you in that time if you will open your heart and allow him to? The first is that this can be a time that shifts our posture. When we wait, we have an opportunity to see ourselves as we really are. We have an opportunity to see the ways that we may show up, shifting blame for our life, the way that we might have half-hearted or lackluster devotion with God. We have an opportunity to change our posture from proud to humble, to actually ask God to fill us, to give us what we can't do for ourselves. Purifying also allows us to refine our passion You see, the people of God were experiencing a time where God's promises, his blessings, his material blessings weren't what they expected. It was an opportunity to ask, what is my relationship with God all about anyway? What does it really mean to have the benefit of my salvation? How am I experiencing God's gracious forgiveness in my life? It can actually clarify and purify our intention with God. And then finally, we can be refined in times of purification to remember what truly matters in our faith, to celebrate what God has done through the birth of Jesus, through the promises of Jesus, and through the great news of the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an advent season. We wait for God to purify us, and we wait in the hope of the gospel. That's what we celebrate together. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the message of Malachi. We thank you for the way that you hold family meetings with us about times where our posture toward you may have shifted from a place of humble reception to pride, to self-righteousness, to apathy. God, we confess those to you now. We open our hands to receive from you, God. We thank you that your promise is that you have loved us and that your promise is that you have sent a messenger and that you have sent the Lord. In this season of waiting, God, would you purify our intentions? Would you shift our posture so that we might be in a place to receive you, Jesus, as Lord? In your name we pray, amen.